And we are back for part two of the epic two-part episode of Hell and High Water, all about billions and more with my friend, my beloved darling, Brian Koppelman, showrunner, co-showrunner with his longtime partner, David Levine, the man behind billions and the moment and so many other things. And we're picking up with David Costable. We got wags here, guys. Like, you know, it's not a party until wag shows up with some illegal substances and at least two prostitutes. And so, David, I don't think you have a prostitute with you today or let alone two. And if you have illegal substances, you're some other place. So I can't have them. That's disappointing. But we do have you for a little more time before we have to let you go. And I have to get back to dealing with Koppelman solo again. So we are here with part two. We got a lot to talk about and Costable's time is, is, is valuable. So let's not waste it anymore. And let's get into the question of the original conception, which we talked about a little bit, the original conception of WAGs and how the character changed from the pilot and from the beginning idea of what it was going to be. Uh, and since then, the WAGs character has evolved. You know, I mean, he is a madman, right? He is a lunatic. He is a decadent, depraved character and also the ultimate consigliere, the ultimate loyalist to Bobby Axelrod the ultimate figure of trust on the show. You are the the king's hand, I think is what they used to call it on Game of Thrones, right? You're the, the hand of the king in some ways. And it's because the core of Wags is his relationship to Axe, this speech I'm about to play, David, from the second season, you're giving Axe a birthday toast and it opens up the whole relationship between the two of you and that also opens up the whole evolution of Wags. So let's play Wags gives a toast to Axe. I've had uh, quite a challenge this week to put together words, ordinary words, to describe the most extraordinary man I ever met. A man as steely as a Roman centurion, cooler than Jean-Paul Belmondo. He's a jaguar shark, an American sniper. Every decision in the space of seven breaths, if you cross him, you put a fucking ding in your universe. <laughs> But these are all exaggerations, derivative. They don't limb the truth of an indefinable essence. They don't speak to my real feelings. It's no exaggeration to say that Bobby Axelrod is the man who gave me my life, or at least let me keep it. That speech goes on for a while longer, and there's some nice writing in there. I'm pretty certain that can't be an episode that Kaufman actually wrote because there's too much too much poetry. There's too much emotion. Too, too much, much emotion and poetry in that. That episode um, is credited to the great Wes Jones. There's not enough uh, weird pop culture references. It's beautiful. No, seriously. Wes wrote that beautiful speech. It's a beautiful speech. Yeah. Beautiful speech. David, if you had to describe how the character has changed, obviously in this fifth season, you know, Wags is grappling with things like his failures as a father. And there's yeah. you know, these moments that are not like just gonzo Wags uh, yeah. that you see in that fifth episode. It's not the first time we've seen that in him, but yeah. just explain how you think the character has grown and changed and how it grows out of the kind of magical chemistry that you've been describing between you and Brian and Dave and the storytelling and, the, and all of that that allows this stuff to happen. I want you to kind of talk about what the stuff is that has happened to the character. I love it when they let Wags take the cover off. There have been a number of times when you open the curtain and you get to see the man behind the curtain. There's this great scene with Maggie early, was it season two, Brian? Yeah. Where it was one of my most favorite scenes ever to film. When she and I are talking on the bench, we're in the park. We're in Central, Central park, park, yeah. It was like the most fun because it was in the morning and I really felt like, oh, I'm in my city and we're shooting this beautiful place and it's just us and the rats and it was just me and my friend. We get to talk about this beautifully written scene. Anyway, um, I feel like for him... He is somebody who, he's got lots of suits of armor that he can put on and take off. And they're very, very beautifully made. 
But the revelation of self, the understanding of self and his, I think he's always been able and capable of speaking the truth about who he is emotionally. But I think that he is on a journey towards a much deeper understanding of how much he actually needs people, in particular X. That That is the person who really saw him, really loved him, because then he is able to express Wags's love for him. It's an incredible reward in a way that that he's really never had a reward in any of his marriages or his children or all the money or all the sex or all the drugs, that there has never been the actual reward of that kind of connection. I mean, obviously, the relationship between Wags and Axe is central to Wags, certainly, and, and, and to the show in a lot of respects, right? So- as you know, I haven't seen the finale of season five, and we've decided that we're not going to spoil the entire thing for people. And so we're kind of talking around some stuff you know that I don't know. But this is both a, a tangible question related specifically to this instance and also a more abstract question that relates to this kind of work. What happens to a character who's part of a dyad if one of the other characters ceases to be quite as important in the future? Right. Well, a character can be important when they're present or not would be one thing I would suggest to you in the internal yeah. life of an actor and then in the character and a writer. Yeah. But I'd also say part of what happens over a long running thing is the characters have to absorb these kinds of blows and refine themselves. And, and a great thing is when someone's unmoored and then they have to find their footing again. And I feel really, really good about a new sort of series of ways that Wags goes through the world and how important Wags is in season six. I can't overstate it. Again, I don't want to spoil things, but I will say that Wags has had to make some tentative steps at teasing out what different kinds of friendships and co-working arrangements feel like and look like and has had to sort of look inside himself at, at what matters and, and why and what he needs. Because through Axe, he learned something that he needed and through Wendy. And, and so here, having to find that in new ways and then understand that becomes important, I think. I mean, we've, again, one of the great things about this is this process happens by dint of us giving Dave the scenes and him playing them. And we've not even talked this out. But it's obviously on both of our minds. Yeah. So does that track for you, Costi, what I'm saying? There are some people that really like talking about it. You know, like I feel like both <laughs> Brian and I, because we are overly heady people, we could talk ourselves till we're blind. And it's yeah. certainly one of the things that I stopped doing as an actor. It yep. So I, I had to force myself to only feel things and to only really have an intuitive response to something. Yes. Yeah. Because I could overthink something and make it so boring it would turn it to dust. And I knew I had to let go of it because I wanted to think about it. I wanted to, to control it. And I, you can't, you can't. Well, that's a whole other challenge. Well, that's a huge gift that you have in life too, Dave. Is the, And we all work towards, right? Is that ability to cast aside all the thinking sometimes and just try to be present and react and live yes. and focus. And it's a huge gift you get when you're acting. And also, John, you know that feeling, those moments when you're writing that you feel both barely tethered to the earth and hyper-present, right? Yes. And you're just flying. So if we can give him the materials that he can burn to fly, we've done our job, you know? Yes. And if he finds a way to fly, he's done his. And it's especially a challenge if you are like Brian. I mean, I don't know Dave well enough to say, like, apparently he's like this too, but you and I are both like hyper-analytical, hyper-rational, hyper-talky. And we both, I mean, can talk ourselves and talk to everyone around us to the point where we're 
We're overthinking, overtalking. I also realized I wasn't that intelligent. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, eh. You, know, you say a bunch of shit, but eh, you don't yeah. really know that much. I mean, yeah. we said actor when we introduced you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so um, I mean, we, we didn't go. say when we introduced you, we said actor. It's the lowest blow, right under the belt. So one of the things about watching, you know, the stuff you guys shot after you came back from, because again, David mentioned like so, some of the unique challenges of shooting this season, yes. the fifth season, part of it before the pandemic, then have some of it after. You look at the stuff that you guys shot after the pandemic since you guys came back. And there's that one episode where some of the stuff's from before the pandemic and some stuff's after the pandemic. And so there are characters who are 30 pounds lighter in certain scenes um, and certainly 30 pounds heavier. Did you lose no. that much weight? No, no, no. I, I no. took it all on. Yeah, I was going to say, I think there are two characters who lost a ton of weight because there's one episode where you, if you're looking, you can see the continuity issue. And you know, in episode eight, actually, we shot all of Paul's scenes after. So he's obviously his appearance changed some. He shaved his beard and yeah. clearly- uh, yeah. Got in some excellent physical shape. The other person, though, you're right. I mean, at Dollar Bill, Kelly lost Kelly. 30 pounds. Yeah. So there was like a scene yes. of Kelly, maybe. Yes. But Paul, it's all um, afterwards. Because Kelly, I could see in these two scenes that he'd lost weight. Yeah, again, you have to be looking for it. But if you're looking for it, you noticed it. Of course. And, uh, and not a problem. But there are, there are all these other challenges, right? And Brian, I only raise it because you raised the thing about Damien and the tragedy with his wife. One of the things you really noticed in these last episodes is like, you know, because Axe has COVID, and he's, you know, on the screen a lot, right? This is a novice television question, but I'm super curious about it. How many of those scenes did you guys actually shoot like that where he was actually on screen talking, for example, to Wags? Or how many of those were Wags where you were like talking to a screen without Damien on the other side of it? Uh, let's not spoil the fiction of that, however it worked. Okay. But I would say mostly Damien was interacting and they were engaging together. I would say that there was never a time when Costi or Maggie had to be acting into the void without a, a very strong actor there acting with them. Right. Again, like I say, I'm enormously admiring of all your talents and skills. Uh, I, I as, mean, you know, part of the gig too is that there are any number of circumstances that you're imagining that are yeah. vast and far past your own experience. Yes. So hopefully one has access to a large, deep, authentic sense of imagination yes and that can translate into the physical world it can translate into the metaphysical world there are any number of ways that you as the translator of that imagination have to act have to do it that's part and parcel of the gig totally get it and so i want to ask you one last question We've been honored and, and delighted to have you here for this period of time. And I could actually probably talk to you guys for like 10 or 12 hours in a row if everybody had if everybody had the right kind of drugs. Exactly. But I do want to ask that last question about the COVID of it all in this sense, because you know you talked about the ways in which going through what everybody had to go through, everybody who's involved in any kind of creative endeavor that went through the pandemic and then you know your season got interrupted and you came back and that created a totally unique experience for everybody. Just say a little more about what it was like to come back after having had the season interrupted, had your company of players broken up and then had to wait all those many months and then come back to finish up the season that you were in the middle of. And then obviously you guys, guys taking the ball and running into season six, but I'm just curious as to what that was like as an emotional experience, uh, a spiritual experience in some ways. Again, no one's ever really gone through that before in any yeah, of our lifetimes. That's true. I mean, it's incredibly moving to be back with people. It was incredibly sad to be back. You know, we lost a company member, this guy, Mark Blum, who's a friend of mine and had been Paul's psychologist. Psych what was he? Psychiatrist? On the show, yeah. And he had been with us. He did the table read on March 10th and Mark passed on March 26th. And it was an incredible 
loss. And it was really powerful to be back doing what we do. And, and, and then just practically, it was, I had two small children and I really didn't know how to talk to another adult. So it took basically almost two weeks for me to get thawed out. Like I didn't think as fast as wags. My mouth didn't move quickly enough. I actually literally couldn't do it fast enough. And then at one moment, because you're speaking with a mask in rehearsal, you're rehearsing with this mask on. And I kept doing this to try to make sure that somebody understood. And it was that scene that you played when I'm shouting at Dhruv at Tuck. And the director was like, can you just put your hands down? (laughs) Because I was waving my hands. Like, there's no way for you to possibly understand me if I'm not moving my hands. So I had to hold onto the desk. I literally clutched the desk in order to make my hands not move. And I was like, well, it's so shameful. I can't stop moving my hands. I don't know how to actually be a human being. There were many aspects of the absurd to the, uh, the, the divine that were difficult. Dave, thanks for coming on. You're thanks for awesome. having me. It was delightful. We'll come Great back again. Maybe I'm, I want to do a whole podcast just with you. Yeah, we'll get rid of compliment and we'll have a real do conversation it. here. I okay. would do that. Talk if I about were you. Catholicism. We'll do it all. We'll get yeah. into it all. Oh boy, I love you, Costi. Love you too. Talk to yeah, you soon, buddy. So yeah, we lose Costi, but we keep copy, and we'll pick up this conversation just you and me, Brian, on the other side of this ad break that I must take because you know it wouldn't be an episode about billions if we didn't sell at least billion. Well, maybe not billions of dollars worth of ads probably not even millions of dollars worth of ads, but we have to sell some ads. And I think that the universe that you've created and the characters within that universe would understand my need to take this break so that we can uh, engage some capitalism. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to listen to an ad or two, and then we'll come back and discuss Brian Koppelman's past and how it led to the creation of billions, including, you know, one of the things that I know people who know you and know about you maybe know, but I still blows my fucking mind. The fact that you were the person who brought Tracy Chapman into the world. And so we're going to take a quick break. We're going to get back to all of that. The life, the legacy, the history, the man, the myth, the legend, Brian Koppelman here on Hell and High Water. And we're back on Hell and High Water on this epic excursion into Billions Land, Billions Topia, Billions to Stand, Billions World. What do you what do you guys call the Billions universe? Sure, whatever the Billions verse. <laughs> yeah, right. So we're discussing the Billions verse <laughs> with Brian Koppelman. And you know, this is a strange episode because like normally when we structure these episodes, it's it's pretty simple. We talk about the present, and then we talk about the past, and then we finish with the future. And so, you know, we've sort of talked about the present with you and billions and where things are. And then we kind of talked about a part of the past that kind of your relationship with Costable, but also again, the present of the show and everything. Costi, um, God, man, Costi, what a fucking dude. He's the best. I mean, yes, yes, absolutely the best. But we got to leave right now. We have to leave the world of of Costi and enter the world of copy. I promised people that this wouldn't just be about billions. And and the reason was there's a lot to talk about that goes way beyond billions. And you've just had this incredibly interesting life. And it all leads in some ways to billions and the success you're having now. And, and the new series, we want to talk about that a little later, the new series you're making right now for Showtime, the non-billions show. But I think, you know, to understand how all this happened, you need to step back and to kind of delve into the way your career in entertainment began, which was not in the world of television, not in the world of film, but started in the realm of music, which ran in your family in various ways, which we can talk about. There was a woman back in the mid-1980s who no one had ever heard of when you 
uh, discovered her. Brian, you were at Tufts and you heard the woman play on campus, I believe. I've heard this story from you so many times, but I'm going to let you tell it. But first, I want to play the song, which I think is the first song you ever heard her play. And it was the moment when the penny dropped and the light bulb went off and everything changed. So let's play this cut from the very beginning of Tracy Chapman's career. It's a little bit of the song talking about a revolution. Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation so we've talked about our friendship, Brian, and when we first met, I had no fucking idea. You know, I knew who Charles Koppelman was, your dad. Sure. That he was a big music executive yes. guy. But I had never, I hadn't put it all together. And our mutual friend, I think, I think I met you through Jonathan Prince, our friend. Yes, for sure. And it was like some of the first stories as we started along this long epic path of telling each other stories about each other's lives. One of the first stories that I heard from you was the story of you as a young A&R person, but really prior to being- Before. Even before even. that, be a college student. Who basically, I mean, am I overstating it? Discovered that woman. That's the language people use about it. And I mean- It's not wrong though. Her talent and her craft was so outsized that I believe her music would have gotten to the world anyway. But I was fortunate enough. And John, this is 36 years ago. You know, I'm 55. I was 19 years old. Well, that makes it all the more incredible. It's a seminal story in your life. And I know people who listen to your podcast have heard the story, but not necessarily everyone who listens to mine. Sure. Anyway, tell the story. Well, here's what happened. I was at college, and at that time, there was a big movement on the northeastern college campuses primarily to encourage the universities to divest from investments in companies doing business with South Africa, because this is at the height of apartheid and the height of Mandela in jail. And we all realized that the money we were paying to our universities was being invested in companies that had some kind of stakehold in South Africa. So we were all agitating. And as part of that, I was one of the leaders of this movement on campus. I wasn't the leader of the movement, but I was one of the people really deeply involved. And we were doing an all-day boycott of classes with events on the lawn to try to, you know, convince everybody. And a friend of mine told me that there was a folk singer I would like who was on campus who should come and play at this day of protest. And I went to this small coffee house on campus that was called Cappuccino's. And I knew the guy opening for Tracy. His name was Leon. Great guy. Kind of sounded like Cat Stevens. Terrific. And I saw Leon play. And then Tracy walked out on stage, John, and the first song she played is called I Used to Be a Sailor. It came out years later. And I was like, what the fuck is that? I mean, I was definitely like miserable 19-year-old stoned and fucked up and depressed. And then she played a set. She played two sets that night, but she closed the first set. She said, I wrote this next song. I was at a boarding school. I was 16. I was having a conversation with the only other person of color there. And people would walk by and we'd smile at them. We would talk to each other very quietly. They had no idea what was going on in our lives. They couldn't understand what was going on in our lives. They didn't had no idea that, that she and I were talking about a revolution, but it sounds like a whisper. And she played talking about a revolution. Yeah. And I will tell you yeah. that 
the world shifted on its axis for me. I'd simply never seen anything like that, but my life had prepared me. You know, you get older, you realize, on the one hand, it's a story about me seeing Tracy Chapman. It's obviously a story about Tracy Chapman. It's also a story about the fact that I was raised in recording studios, that I was raised by somebody who thought about songs as almost holy things. And I just spent, before the Gladwell 10,000 hours, talking about songs with my dad. Yeah. Like, I just spent all the time talking about songs, listening to them, going to recording studios with him. So people often say, uh, well, I didn't use connections to do X, Y, or Z if they were in a position like I was. And this is true, right? It might not be about the fact that you have certain connections. It might be about the fact that you got a kind of training that's just not available to most yes, people. Yes, of course, right. But, you know, the older I get and the, the more aware I am, Yes, it was a remarkable thing. You know, I spent two and a half years trying to convince Tracy to work together and work with me and my dad. I produced her demo tapes. We got the record made. All this stuff happened. And it was, I will say, it changed my college experience because basically the next two years only became about Tracy to me. And I recognized for sure that I was unlikely to come across anything like this ever again. Right. And all I'd ever thought I'd wanted to be was an A&R person. And so this was it in front of me, you know. And as it happened... April of my senior year. So this was early in my sophomore year that I saw Tracy. And then April of my senior year, the album came out. And August, right after I graduated, it went to number one. Yes. And so I lived this incredible experience, no doubt. And then that launched me into the music business right. in a way that was on my own. And I did that for nine years until David and I wrote Rounders. And I would just say at a time when having a number one record meant something very different from what we're now it's almost it's not meaningless but it's almost meaningless compared to what it meant well she sold 10 million or 12 million albums yes. that's what i'm saying i mean it's hard for anybody who's much younger than us to understand what it was like to be around when there was still the ability to have a hit song that was like literally you'd hear it out, out of car, car window for a couple months and you was just like the sound was everywhere around you but as much as i believe i was instrumental in helping tracy get to where she got the benefit to me was extraordinary. Yes. Not just because I made some money at a young age and I was able to make my mark, but I was able to gain confidence in my taste. Yes. Which led- Huge. Because she got rejected. I mean, the, my favorite part of the story is I brought all these different A&R people to see Tracy and they all passed. Yes. They all recognized that they were moved by her. They were crying. And, th and then they would say, yeah, but no one will sign this. But I was young enough and naive enough to not care about that yeah, part. Right. And that led to all the other rejections I ever had with tons of, you know, many, many rejections. I was able to go, well, wait, these fucking smart people, not even idiots, right. all these smart people right. with big careers missed why this was remarkable. Right. And a super important thing in your life, because again, we could spend an infinite amount of time talking about this, but it's just, I think it suffice to say that you had, I can say this, you will not say it the way I'm going to say it, that you were a brilliant guy, a brilliant kid who was told he was stupid for a lot of his life or not seen as being brilliant. Costable's comments notwithstanding, you know, I think you've suffered from a lot of lack of confidence and a lot of lack of certainty as a kid. And, and it wasn't like you were. I had bad ADHD and it would, I think what it was, was the disconnect, John. Right. In other words, the dichotomy, some part of me understood that when I read a book that I loved, I was able to apprehend what was going on in a yes. certain way, right? Yep. But I couldn't perform on tests. Yes. I couldn't perform in a classroom. 
And that's then, what I mean. You were like the Phi Beta Kappa kid who no, was like, man, you know, I, Dean's I list, a, honors list, superstar, you know. I was a disaster. Right. I was lucky that's that I, I got mean. into Tufts. This is what yeah. I mean. And so to have a big confidence boosting thing like this for you was huge because it was like, yes. you know, a lot of people, again, were telling you you were wrong in some way. Correct. And then it turned out that you were not just right, but you were right in this massive, overwhelming way. Yes. That was like a big, giant, if, if you had been a more, probably there were a few moments when you thought it was a big, giant middle finger to all the people who told you you were wrong, but also just boosted your sense of like, oh, I have fucking taste. She was I so do. great. I'll just say she was so great. Yeah. It's weird. I had no doubt about the actual quality <laughs> of what Tracy was. Yeah. The commercial thing, who fucking knew? Yes, and of course. they would reject it. And I would be like, yeah, everything you're saying is logical, but like, look at that. Like, look at what she's doing saying right. and singing. Look at that voice. You just led us up to rounders. And I do think that in understanding the arc of your creative life, I'm going to talk about rounders in a second. But before we talk about rounders. Yes, sir. You have to explain, you know, given the success, not just Trace Chapman, to other bands that you then went on to sign and other things that you did in those nine years that you worked as an A&R executive. Like, what was the thing that made you go, I'm going to give this up now and I've got to go start writing for television or film? There are like three answers, but the simplest, most direct answer is when Amy and I had our first child, I had a real internal crisis about wanting to be the kind of person who would tell his kids to like live their dreams, but I, I knew I wasn't. And I knew that I had let the ADHD stuff, my inability to turn things in on time, the path, the trajectory I'd taken, I had let it convince me that I could never be an artist. And I cared so much about books and music and movies and <laughs> I so loved much. those things so, so much. much. They meant so much, so much yeah. to me. And yet I was thwarted every time I would try. You know, I'd get up in the middle of the night sometimes and I would go to my, whatever the big desktops we all had, and I would try to write. Yeah. And, you know, I'd write something and then I would fucking trash it the next day. But I, I got to a real crisis point. And at the same time, I hated the music business. You know, yeah. I love the part of working with the artist, but I hated all the other aspects of it. Yeah. But it was really this thing. I went to my best friend, David, who was tending bar. And I said, like, I have got to find a way to do this. And he gave me the artist's way, you know, and I did the artist's way, the Julia Cameron book. Yeah. And in doing the exercise in there, the morning pages and all that stuff, it just became clear that if I didn't try to do this kind of work, look, I think a blocked artist, something inside of you dies when you allow yourself to be blocked. And like any other blockage, it becomes toxic. It's a death, right? And death becomes toxic. And then that toxicity of that death, I felt it would ooze out of me onto the people I loved because I would turn bitter. And I didn't want that to happen. And so I had to find a way to do this kind of work. And, you know, that's what led me to deciding no matter what, I have to start producing work on a daily basis that's mine. And that led to David and me writing the first movie. One of the things that's clear is that although you hated the music business, you obviously continue to be one of the biggest music fans, one of the most knowledgeable music fans I know. On any given night, you and I could spend six hours talking about whatever, and we'd be talking about things we've never talked about before, even though we've talked about it, it seems like everything when it comes to music, right? So one of the great joys of Billions is the way in which music figures into it. And you take an incredible amount of personal ownership in the music that appears in it. You don't score it yourself, obviously. Brendan Angelides does an incredible job scoring it. Dave and I found Brendan, obviously. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But you guys have a big, big, big role in the key music cues. Dave and I pick every the, single of, song in the show. 
every single fucking song, which of course, if anybody who knows you, you know, not surprised, you would never let the control over the key songs that, you know, forget about the score, the songs in the, in the show, you'd never let anybody else choose those songs, that madness. And, you know, it's funny. I, I asked one of the crack members of the Helen Highwater team to go through the finales of every season of the show. And there's always a big song that comes in somewhere in, in often there are a number of important songs in the episodes and the finales, but there's always one that comes in at the end and, you know, a longer music cue that has a particular importance. It's not quite as formulaic as The Wire, which of course used to, you know, have a very particular way of ending every season on a big, long music cue. But you have leaned into these things and in some ways they kind of sum up the whole season. So here's the list of the songs for each season. I just want to say this, right? Season one, episode 12, Dimed Out by Titus Andronicus. And season two, episode 12 is Homecoming by Josh Ritter. The third season is One for My Baby and One More for the Road by Frank Sinatra, <laughs> classic. Season four, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding by Elvis Costello and The Attractions. Those are all big, important songs that are laden with importance for the finales and the seasons that they end, right? And of course, we said earlier, for anybody who remembers back in part one of this podcast, I said we weren't going to give away any spoilers for the finale of season five. Now, again, I want to remind everybody, you're listening to this podcast. It's the finale's already aired. So no one's going to fucking yell at me and say we did a spoiler I'm erring so wildly on the side of caution that no one will think that I'm even being sane. We should be talking about the finale, but we're not. But we're going to talk about one thing that's in the finale. And I only know about it because you told me about it, Brian, which is you told me the song that season five ends with. And I want you to talk about the song and why it's there and why it's important to you and why it's it's not really just important for that episode or for the season. But I think it's important really for the whole five season arc and in particular, the story of Bobby Axelrod. The episode is called No Direction Home. We always title these episodes, and if you look online, you'll see them. Yes. And that's a line from the song Like a Rolling Stone. And every single season of Billions has had a Bob Dylan song in a very important place. Yep. And always building to the end of season five when Like a Rolling Stone was going to play. We always thought if we can get to the fifth season, which is, you know, like season five is a really big deal for lots of reasons. Right. That Right. Our story, we, we felt when we started realizing what the story we wanted to tell was in, in season five, we just knew Like a Rolling Stone was what was going to be there playing us out. So wait, you're, you're not saying that Like a Rolling Stone was the song that you always knew once you started season five that would be the end of season five. You're saying that back long before, like you were like years ago. I'd say this, when you start thinking about, okay, we're going to play yeah. a song that's important to us, a Dylan track. You have to make the decision not to play like a Rolling Stone. You're, you're making a decision. Can the show last long enough that we kind of earn like a Rolling Stone? <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, what if we hold that out? We never get to, to use it. But you know, well, it would be amazing if when we have a certain sort of thing, we get to a certain place, if we can use like a Rolling Stone. But also, John, in this season, you know, you took me to this incredible Patti Smith, Michael Stipe concert once. Yeah. And, you know, we got to use two Patty songs in the first episode of season five. And there's something really beautiful about ending the first episode of season five with Summer Cannibals by Patti Smith and then ending the last episode with Like a Rolling Stone. Because if you're a deep music person, you understand the connection of Patti Smith and Bob and all that they meant to each other and, and to certain groups of people. And so that's really, to me, a very beautiful kind of a, uh, a run. It's fantastic. And of course, you know, in some ways, like Rolling Stone is one of those songs that is 
so huge, so epic, so important, so rich, so resonant, so everything that on some level it's like, well, this is a cliche. And on some level, it's also like the ultimate thing you really have to earn, right? It's like- Correct. In order to make Like a Rolling Stone, not just yes. a cliched thing or yeah. something you use to boost, you know, to use the uh, memetics associated with it, but to actually let it land anew, yeah. which is what I think happens here, that's, you have to earn. And Axe's apartment this season, season five, is festooned with Bob Dylan paintings. Every painting in Axe's apartment is a Bob Dylan painting. They're all Bob Dylan paintings. Wow. I'm learning new billions trivia even here as we speak. Fucking crazy. Okay. So I, I said we would put a pin in rounders, and I want to jump into that discussion after we take another break on this epic two-part episode of Hell and High Water with Brian Koppelman. I want to talk, Brian, about your journey into writing after working in the music industry, Tracy Chapman, and then deciding that you didn't want to be in that business anymore, despite the fact that it was your kind of family business because you're a dad. So we're going to get to that. How Brian Kaufman became a writer after this quick break. We'll be back with that. And I maybe we'll end this two-part episode or maybe it'll turn into a three-part episode. Who knows? Suspense. See you right back after the ads with Brian Kaufman here on Hell and High Water. So we're back with the Brian Koppelman on this special two-part episode of Hell and High Water. And I want to play a clip, the clip I've been most dying in some ways to play because for all of the, the Billions fanboys, there's a whole other collection of Rounders fanboys, like people who will tell you that Rounders is, you know, the greatest poker movie ever made and that they love Rounders and they watch Rounders. And whenever Rounders comes on cable, they watch Rounders. You have to stop if Rounders is on. And Rounders is on cable a lot. So this is a good place to jump up. Rounders is a huge, important movie in your career. First movie that you wrote that got made. So let's listen to this key moment in the movie, a movie that started it all for you. Here it is, Matt Damon, the great Matt Damon and the even greater. Now, I don't know. I wouldn't want to measure him. Matt Damon's pretty great. John Malkovich is really great. Here's a key scene in this great movie. Brian and Dave Levine's first movie together, Rounders. Let's take a listen. Be a judgment. But don't you worry, son. It will all be over soon. Check. No structure, but you. Monster hand, I'm gonna lay that down. Cause you got two four and I'm not gonna draw against a mate hand. Lays down a monster. Should have paid me off on that. The fuck did you lay that down? Not hungry? Mr. Son of a Bitch, let's play some cards. So that's a key scene in the movie Rounders. Rounders move about poker. Teddy KGB, played by John Malkovich, poker hustler. Mike, played by Matt Damon, also poker hustler. In a key, one of a number of confrontations between the two of them. That's the climactic one. And that's the moment when Matt Damon figures out 
that Teddy KGB has to tell. And that's a turning point in their epic struggle. Brian, not just because it's your first movie, was your first movie, but for a lot of reasons, I think that Rounders, I mean, it's, it's a movie that people are still obsessed with many years later. It's a movie that still holds up, um, incredible cast, incredibly written, you know, deeply re- reported and researched by you. It's like a, a piece of journalism in some ways, in addition to a, a brilliant screenplay. As you look back on it now, how many years ago I mean, is it now? that movie came out in 98. Right. We're getting close to the 25th anniversary, yeah. right? What did it mean to you then? What does it mean to you now? I mean, it meant everything in the world then. Our wildest hopes for that movie are exactly what happened. We wanted to write a movie that people would quote to each other the way we quoted Diner to each other. And we wanted it mm-hmm. to be the kind of thing that would be quoted for decades. That was our stated goal to each other. And the way we'd quote House of Games or any other Mammoth thing or Coen Brothers movie. Like, obviously, you would it would have been great if the thing was a huge hit at the time. But that really wasn't what we set out to do. We set out in much the same way I described the way we work on Billions. I mean, we just wanted to entertain each other. But more than that, we were young people who wanted to break into this world, right? We, we, were, we had so yeah. much ambition and so much hope. And we wanted to just write the greatest, you know, you want to write the best thing ever made. And we wanted to do something better than the Cincinnati Kid if we could and California Split, right? We were trying our, to make the best poker movie ever made, right. which this whole time I never ascribed any level of quality to billions when I talk about it, but I do think Rounders is the best poker movie ever made because it's in the past. You know, I'm still working on billions. I can't sort of render any personal judgment. I know why people love it. But the fact that people are still so engaged with that movie. And when you think about what the movie's about, right, it's about a guy at a crossroads and trying to decide which version of his life he's going to live. And I've, you know, I've just described to you a few of those moments that I've lived. And and I think David and I felt we were at that kind of precipice. And we put everything we felt and thought, all of the things we hoped into that character and into that script. And and I got to say again, that was rejected over and over again. And those rejections hurt so badly. And yet I didn't, you know, think they rendered final judgment. And, and you know, when it first came out, some critics didn't like it. And all that stuff happens. But one thing that luckily has happened for Dave and me over and over again is that actors seem to see through a lot of the sort of stuff in the world to find our, our material. Actors want to play these characters. And yeah. so to land Matt and Edward and Malkovich and Turturro in that <laughs> film at that time was just a crazy thing to crazy us. Crazy cast. What a crazy cast for a first-time screenwriter. Right. How could the five... It's just a fucking miracle. And then John Dollar that, directed the movie and, and you know, he invited us. I mean, this is the other part. That was film school, right? We didn't go to film school. But we right. were on set every single day of Rounders. And John invited us and had us there and let us interact with the actors and encouraged us to be a part of it. And that was, oh, here's how you make something. Right, writing something is one thing, but here's how you make something, and we've taken those lessons forward. Yes, funny John Dahl. I looked up the other night. I was watching an episode of another one of our uh, another sh- show on our network on Showtime, American Rust. Just had an episode that was directed by John Dahl. Oh yeah, he directed like, oh. the pilot too. He that's yeah, his show. I was like, yeah. oh, I was like, here, here's John Dahl. It's not obviously your show, but I, one of the things it did is brought to mind all the ways in which connective tissue across time works in this business. And one of the things that you guys have created, and I've heard you talk with Edward Norton about this, about this notion of building a creative community around yourself. And you and Dave have really self-consciously done that. And, you know, it was 
such a great thing to see Malkovich come back and be on Billions in, in what was it, season three? Yeah, three and four. He's in both. Three and, so it's like amazing. Like Malkovich is back. I mean, who doesn't love Malkovich? He's brilliant. He's brilliant in really everything he does. He's like never put a foot wrong, basically, as an actor. But it was great to see it because you guys are very self-conscious in the way that, and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass when I mention these people's names, but you know, whether it's Tarantino or whether it's Spike Lee or whether it's a lot of other people that we admire, part of what they do is they're, they're very self-consciously creating uh, the company of players and collaborators and co-conspirators. And you guys have very much set out to do that. And I know that was part of your aspiration as you built these careers for yourselves was what you wanted to do. In addition to the thing you said about you and Dave, just wanting to make each other laugh, smile, be satisfied, delighted by each other's work. You also were very self-conscious throughout your career, which had its ups and downs, yes. you know, after rounders, dry years. You talked about one when you were at a place where your agents were telling you they thought you might not ever work again. You know, you had your ups, you had your downs, but throughout you were building Absolutely. that community, right? In a very self-conscious, very considered, very kind of rigorous way. And now that it's that Billions has been such a success- it's flourishing around you and it's part of the success of billions, right? Even when you guys were having dry, lean years, you were building that community and it's really now paying off. Yes. John Dahl's directed when we had a little show called Tilt that we did, John Dahl came in and directed that gave him his start. He gave us our start in film and we, in a way, and we brought him into TV business. Then he became this huge TV director and he's come in and directed many episodes of billions. And yeah, Malkovich, look, we're sitting in the writer's room. And Dave and I were talking to Adam Perlman, who was a writer on the show and ran the writer's room with us for a number of years and talking about this Russian oligarch and realized we could write this for John. And I just texted him, you know, and I just said, hey, you want to come do three episodes with us, play a Russian oligarch? Here's kind of what he's like, because we'll make yeah. the character for you if you want to do it. Yeah, yeah. And 30 seconds later, John Malkovich wrote back and just said, I'm in, done. And it was so thrilling because, you know, we'd made rounders with John Malkovich. Then we made knockaround guys with Malkovich. And we'd stayed yep. friends over all this time. But, you know, in this business, because it's peripatetic and you're just all over the place, you don't see your friends all the time. And you don't even communicate all the time. I could go two years without speaking to John. When we see one another, we are truly bonded. Yeah. You know, it's not like we'd just been texting. I probably hadn't texted him in 10 months or 12 months or whatever. But I had this feeling. And I was like, I'm just going to ask him. And I texted him. And he immediately was like, done. And when he shows up and had this full understanding of this guy who isn't Teddy KGB, but obviously like the idea of him playing this Russian dude. Um, <laughs> he is Russian. In the Louboutin I mean, yeah. shoes yeah. and all that shit. It was just um, fucking yeah. amazing. I, yeah, I mean, like it fucking blows your mind. And and Len, of course, you know, amazing in conception. It's going to be amazing. And then he comes and is in the show and is just killer in every fucking scene he does. And so, I mean, it's worth playing a little bit just so we can hear what, the older Malkovich now, not the Malkovich of Rounders, but the Malkovich of Billions. In season three, there was an episode where his character's name is Grigor, and he, he's telling Bobby Axelrod a story. This is a little long. You know, we normally don't play clips that are more than about 30 seconds. This is a little long, but I want to play it because you can't really play this clip without playing the whole thing to really get the emotional impact of it and the creepiness of it. So I'm going to play the whole thing and you're just going to like, everybody's just kick back for a minute and a half or so and, and wallow around in the glorious like creepiness of Russian gangster mafiosi plutocrat played by the one and only John Malkovich. This is an incredible thing. Let's play this. Many years ago, I was walking around the Moscow Christmas market. They serve warm wine with the spices in the cinnamon. And 
I was waiting on the line. Everyone was always waiting on the line. And finally, I got my cup. I turned, and there was this little boy, runny nose. He is looking at me so desirous of my cup, of this warm, warm wine, that I give him a sip. He stares at me with such a gratitude. And then I notice his mother. Plump breast. She must have known someone. So I give him my cup of wine and I take his mother away from the square behind the soldiers. And after I leave her for the soldiers. And I walk back and this little boy is staring at me with his greedy, drunken eyes. Do you know what happened to him? No. I always ask. No one ever knows. Man, like, that is so dark and so fucking amazing just as a piece of work. I mean, Malkovich, right? I mean, who's better? He's also the most beautiful fucking dude and so giving and so generous as an artist and has always been there for us. And we would always be there for him. And man, did he come through for us, man. He's just the best. Well, and I will only say, man, watching Malkovich, I know you and I are both admirers. Something I watched at the very beginning of the pandemic was I finally got around to watching The Young Pope. Oh my God. Uh, it's in Paolo Sorrentino's and, and a genius. Sorrentino's Full a stop. genius. He's a genius. I know. And and I missed it when it, the first season aired. And so Diana and I sat down and we watched the first season. Then we watched the Malkovich season and Malkovich and Jude Law in that season and Sorrentino's. I mean, I, you and I have actually talked about this once, I believe, but we, I blew me away. It was like one of the best things I've ever watched on television. Yes. The first season was went by me and I was like, ah, young Pope Jude Law, eh, whatever. And then we watched it and we were like, oh my God, this is That's so That's a perfect good. example of what you were talking about so earlier. Good. The pilot lost me of that yeah. show. I watched yeah. half the pilot and yeah. I turned it off. And then I started watching it again and I watched the second episode and I was like, oh, this is the best show I've ever seen in my yes, fucking life. Yes. Well, and Malkovich as a yeah. aristocratic, sexually ambiguous, heroin addict- punk rock pope is one of the just most mind-blowing characters i think has ever been on 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 television i've gotten to spend some time with paolo and it's just uh, he's a total genius that guy's a complete film genius the series is one of the most beautiful things to look at of anything i mean it's just i think a, that a show and the crown are the two best things on on television those are my ravishing two those are great shows and I, here's my last question yes. for you because we've talked for too long already but i can never let it's go so fun you. to talk to you john always it's a testament to how much I love you and love talking to you is that if we could clone ourselves, we could just have two cloned copies of ourselves that would just talk 24 hours a day. You really could. Talk, talk and eat. <laughs> oh, and they would just uh, all they do is talk and eat all, all day long. It's like talk and eat and talk and eat and talk and eat and drink. Um, I got to ask you, though, about the new series. Because you're, in addition to making billions, you're also making a new series for Showtime. And I believe, if I understand this correctly, and I think I do, you're launching what's going to be a business anthology. I, I don't want to make it sound too quotidian, but you're basically doing a, an anthology series, the first season of which is based on or about, ex explicitly is about Uber. The first season of which is an adaptation of Mike Isaac's book, Super Pumped, Pumped which is the story 
of Uber's rise and, and in a way, Travis Kalanick's rise and fall. Right. And Bill Gurley's, who was in a, an incredibly successful venture capitalist. Yes. Also very tall. In 6'10", yeah. in real life, who became involved in helping Uber get to the next level. And it's Kyle Chandler plays Gurley and Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays Travis Kalanick. How's it going? There are certain announcements about cast I can't say right now, but I will tell you, David and I are, we are, cannot fucking believe the show that we're getting to make. Isaac wrote an incredible book. We adapted the book. We dove really heavy into the research. And this is a true story. Are you enjoying doing something that's not in the realm of pure fiction? That's not purely like just a pro that you're doing docudrama. You know? I mean, you've done yes. these and I, I enjoy it so much. Yes. You know, it's great. You're staying true to what happened while trying to make it elevated in a way that it's worth considering purely as narrative drama. And I'll say these actors, I honestly cannot believe the show that we're getting to make and the cast and crew that we've put together for this thing are, are just firing all cylinders. We're in the third week of uh, shooting and yeah, I'm just Absolutely thrilled about well, it. Well, as you know, because I spent the time, wrote a book about Silicon Valley and about Bill Gates, and because I've lived out there for a while, I'd like I have always thought that Silicon Valley and modern American businesses were waiting for. There are obviously many great, brilliant books written about these things, so I'm not in any way denigrating people who write books about them. But for the screen, no one has, has taken this on, this mantle of becoming the great chroniclers in both fiction yes. and docudrama of yes. this enormously important, rich, operatic just so drenched in power, which is, of course, really what all of these things are about. You and I are both obsessed with power that you guys have taken this on. And I think it's not just this first swing you're taking, but that you That's have right. these ambitions to become that. And I just, man, I think you guys are let off the chain with the kind of resources and and the kind of backing and confidence people have in you now. You guys could go on a fucking run right now, man, and make some can't, incredible I can't, shit. can't wait. I mean, it's um, working ourselves really, really hard, but it's worth it. I, I feel I like I cannot wait for this series. I cannot wait to see not just what you guys do with the Uber story, but what you do with all of the other incredible business stories that you guys are going to, after the Uber story, this is going to be, I think, a landmark thing. Like I said before, you know, there have been some great things made about American business icons and and the power struggles and so on, but you guys have such a singular point of view about this stuff and and the, the writing is so crackling and the kind of cash you guys put together. I just think this is going to be, as much as Billions has been a legacy defining thing for you, Brian, I think this this series could be a thing where you guys really establish yourselves, as I said, as kind of like the premier popular cultural chroniclers of American business life at the highest levels. And I think that would be fucking rad because you're in this world now of docudrama and I just can't wait to see what you're going to do with it. And I am so grateful for you taking all this time to be on the show today. I know there's probably 500 people banging on your door because you're like, you're shooting a fucking television show and, and everybody wants every second of your time. And yet you're sitting here with me for 47 hours talking shit. Everybody, if you have not seen the totality of the fifth season of Billions, I tell you, having not yet seen the, the finale myself, I am highly confident that it's going to be a world-rocking, series-altering, life-changing thing for anybody who's a Billions fan. You know, go watch that fucking thing. We're all going to sit and wait with bated breath until Super Pumped hits. When, when does it come out? Brian, when? Certainly 2022. Next year. 2022. 2022. Don't make us wait 2023. I'll have to come over there. I know where you we live. Will not. I know where you live. Remember that. I mean, you'll get to see it before then. I know. John, thank you so much for doing this. Love you, buddy. Love you, brother. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Brian Koppelman and special guest drop-in, David Costable, for being with us, Uncle Wags. 
If you like this episode or maybe even love this episode, who doesn't love Brian Kaufman and David Costable? What the fuck? If you liked it, if you loved it, please subscribe to Hell and I Water and share us and rate us and review us favorably on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is co-creator of Hell and I Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Bender is our post-producer. And Christian Bidel, Castro Russell, he's our executive producer. 